This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and comedian Baratunde Thurston is joined in conversation by actor and director Rotimi Agbakpiaka to discuss comedy, race, technology, politics, and everything in between. This talk was recorded on March 24, 2017 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. What's up? Yes. Hello, hello, San Francisco. Give yourselves a big round of applause. Oh. It's so good to be here, so good to be in the mission. I saw uh, five real life Latino people. I think amazing. They're hanging in there. A lot of folks talk about the resistance. Latinos in the mission in San Francisco in 2017. That's the resistance. La resistencia. I saw a black person, it was my reflection. I got too excited. <laughs> got too excited and doubled the population of black people here. The zip code is good. You guys feeling all right? Yeah? We're gonna have a fun night. Uh, I'm gonna share some stories and some thoughts and then I'm gonna sit down with a man whose name is even blacker than mine and we're gonna, we're gonna have a conversation and we're gonna rope you guys in. Um, so let me, let me start and go back a few months. Uh, back in October, uh, my girlfriend and I went to, on a trip to Spain and to France. And she's white. Uh, and I say that, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it's to brag, maybe it's to confess. Uh, maybe it's because I'm racist. Like I don't, I don't know, I have to talk to my therapist who's Mexican about that. But we, we got over there, we were having a good time. We were in a couple of days and the third day, she had a terrible accident and she fell down, and she broke one ankle, and she sprained the other ankle at the same damn time. And that put me in a difficult situation, because I had to decide, like, do I leave her here? <laughs> she had become a burden, I didn't really sign up for this, it's supposed to be a vacation. Or do I rent a wheelchair and dust off Spanish with the help of Google Translate, and literally push her around Europe and carry all the bags? Obviously, I left her, but... Her Instagram stories were inspired, and she's doing great. She's just, you know, I, I rose to the occasion. And that, that trauma, that painful physical, emotional event, it brought us closer together, much like the election has done for many uh, in this country. What also surprised me was how different things were when she and I came back to the U.S. And I'd gotten used to a world where walking around with her would sometimes be met with stank-eyed, side-eye, shade thrown from some of my black sisters who would give me that look, right? There goes another brother with a white chick. I'm used to that. She just gave me that, right? Like... <laughs> Love you, sis. <laughs> but here's the thing. When you're pushing your white chick around in a wheelchair, 
kind of changes things. Because there is no equivalent, oh, there goes another brother with a wheelchair chick. Like, that's not, that's not a thing. Not yet, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. Fortunately, she's healed up really well. She's able to like take the subway and walk around and uh, just be like an active person again. But when we are in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, I put her back in that wheelchair. Because <laughs> she needs to remember, like it's not always about you. you know? It's an important lesson in relationships. We should all understand. I'm obviously thinking a lot about our 45th president, Steve Bannon. I'm thinking a lot about <laughs> what's going on. I have been really impressed with the alliances formed in response to the dark orange cloud descending on a nation. It's like you really, you have groups linking arms that I would not have predicted before. You've got Muslims and LGBTQ, You've got women and scientists and lawyers all linking arms to defend the republic. But what has really taken me aback is my own response. Because I find myself cheering on the FBI and the CIA. <laughs> I'm a liberal black American dude with a pan-Africanist mother who is rolling in her grave. And I'm like, yo, what is going on here? FBI literally disrupted the civil rights movement, tried to blackmail and assassinate our leaders, turned us against each other. But when James Comey was up on that stand and he was like, I have no information that supports those tweets, I was like, damn straight you don't. Yeah, COINTELPRO maybe wasn't all that bad. I don't know, maybe I prejudged. Maybe you were just trying to stress test our resilience. See how much we wanted justice before you offered it up. Maybe I was wrong. The CIA has undermined democracies all over the world, propped up dictators and despots and death squads in defense of an American hegemony. But when they leaked the Michael Flynn meetings with the Russian spymaster, I'm like, hey, maybe cocaine and guns in the hood. Maybe that wasn't all bad. Maybe you were playing like this four-dimensional chess match, right? to encourage local economic activity, right? It was basically a small business loan to the black and brown communities of America, courtesy of the Central Intelligence Agency. So keep leaking, my brethren, keep leaking. It's an amazing time. Uh, I think about Russia a lot. I say less because I like living. Uh, and I live on a fourth floor apartment. I prefer the stairs to the window. but. One of the, uh, there's just so much news. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. It's okay, you can look it up later. Something bad happened and Trump was involved. There you go. Uh, that's just the news, that's the news now. Something bad happened and Trump was involved. You don't need the details. That's like the new template for news. I just, I just wrote it for you. Um, no, but the Russia stuff is, is fascinating because it's become a way of understanding like who's important to Donald Trump. If you're, if you think you're important to Donald Trump and you don't have a high-level secret Russian contact, you are not important to Donald Trump, right? That's the test, and it's made me feel bad for Rick Perry. I'm like, what? Rick Perry got glasses, y'all. Like, he went and bought glasses to, to prove how smart he is. And the Russians are like, nah, we're good. He controls our nuclear arsenal, and the Russians are like, no, really, we're good. Like, we don't, we don't need Rick Perry. 
That was the part of the show where I throw unnecessary shade at Rick Perry. <laughs> I do that in every public address I have. There are many out there looking for an explanation. You know, how did we get here as a nation? How did we get to a point where Donald J. Trump is our president? The answer, of course, is history. Thank you for the two snaps. <laughs> I thought it was a three snap joke myself, but you reserve the right to withhold that extra snap to see where I go with it. I, I respect your restraint. <clears throat> Let's see. <laughs> no, but if you're looking for a scapegoat with a name to blame, I offer up Sir Isaac Newton. I do, I do. You guys know who Isaac Newton is, right? He invented CrossFit. And so he, um, Isaac Newton invented CrossFit, called it physics, it was great. So he, there's a third law of physics, which is super relevant right now. The third law of physics to every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. I think that same logic applies to race and political universes here in the United States. To every first black president, there will be an equal and opposite super shitty white president. Like that is just physics. It's just physics. It turns out when you assess the whiteness, Jeb Bush wasn't white enough to follow Barack Obama. Like he spoke Spanish voluntarily. Like what kind of white American dude does that? kind of Republican man these days speaks a foreign language on purpose. So yeah, Isaac Newton predicts it. You go from a high-achieving constitutional law scholar, a Harvard Law Review editor, a man who respects his wife and his daughters, to this shameless, narcissistic, thin-skinned, tiny-handed man who's afraid of stairs and brags about sexual assault, right? That's, that's the natural order of things. Donald Trump opened his campaign with Mexicans are rapists. That was his opener. Like, I do a lot of shows. I've never opened with Mexicans are rapists. And it's honestly, it's not about the merits of the argument. It's about the lack of room you leave yourself. If you open with Mexicans are rapists, where do you go from there? You gotta start retweeting white supremacists. That's the logical next step. You go, you're addicted to that high. I, uh, I'd also, I'd love to ask for a moment of silence uh, for the man who just entered the room super late. Can we have a moment of silence <laughs> for the guy? No, no, uh, legitimately a moment of silence for the death of Trump care today. Uh, just uh, so. I just feel so bad for Paul Ryan. He was looking forward to kicking old people off of their insurance and he's gonna have to do it manually now. <laughs> nursing home to nursing home, just shoving old ladies into the street. Pre-existing condition. Uh, I think anybody who believed that Donald Trump was gonna save healthcare never saw Donald Trump's doctor. Right, like, you learn a lot about somebody from that doctor. His doctor is like this terminally ill Ron Jeremy look-alike contestant. That guy's gonna save healthcare, really? And Steve Bannon, right, shows up to work at the White House every day like he's auditioning for Bad Santa 3 every day. Every day. He looks worse. 
He looks like he's been president for 50 years. It's disgusting. And it's a double standard. I don't know any woman or person of color who could show up at the car wash job looking the way Steve Bannon shows up for a White House job. No respect for yourself. Just show some respect for yourself. It's disgusting. But we're here. And, and part of the reason we're here is because we built it. It's not a surprise. We built it. And part of how we built it is with, in part, there's no single, there's no single problem, racism. But the, the, there is um, a significant culprit in, in the portfolio of blame to go around uh, to, to our tech leaders, to our geeks, to our nerds, who, who led us into a sense of ease, a sense of on-demand everything, right? You could click a button and get a TV show or a burrito or a car at any moment, probably a Camry, but definitely a car to just show up. Any make and model of Camry, any color but a Camry for sure. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at where we're at and how we got here and who was playing a part. And, and I, gotta, I think about the Uber thing so much. I think about Travis's company. We should just start calling it Travis's company. <laughs> I don't use Travis's company anymore. But you like... You wonder, so it's so cheap sometimes, but it takes all your money. Like, how does that work? Like, it's so cheap, but it takes all your money. That is evil. Like, that's just an evil service right there. It's dark magic. Uh, and like, so here's a guy who busted onto the scene, and all these VCs threw all this money because he's disrupting. He's disrupting. How do you do it? He's disruptive. He's so aggressive. He's such a rule breaker. He's a bad boy. He breaks all the rules. And then five years later, you're like, wait, you totally are powered by misogyny and labor exploitation. You're a bad boy. You break all the rules. Like, it's funny we didn't see that coming. I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. So I don't, I, don't, I don't mess with that anymore. But I think about the screens we're addicted to, and I think about the truth we think we get from the screens. You know, I was addicted to the upshot in 538.com. Leading up to the election, they predicted a 117.5% chance that Hillary Clinton would definitely be empress for the next 30 years. And I was like, cool, we're good. And it didn't turn out that way. The same way your wage trip never turns out the way it's predicted. Like it never turns out the way it tells you to. People will follow a GPS into a ditch. <laughs> Literally this happens. And that's literally what the country did last fall. We followed the GPS into a ditch. Instead of looking out the damn window, realizing Donald Trump is making sweet xenophobic love to your cousin and your aunt. And you're just following what the screen says. It's really disappointing. It's really disappointing. So, yeah, ouch. Jokes that hurt. <laughs> so I think about that. And I also, I think about the power that the internet has given all of us. That we largely have celebrated. It's like, yeah, internet gives everybody a voice. And then you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> everybody, though? <laughs> right, the great power of our connected network society is that you not only get a voice, you get community, too. And that is beautiful. If you're an in-the-closet gay teen in a world where you may be excommunicated from everything you know and love, including your physical home, if the internet can show you that it gets better, that's amazing. That is positive. That is to be celebrated. But 
If you are collecting gold bars in your bunker, listening to Alex Jones and Infowars, thinking blue-helmeted United Nations jackbooted thugs are going to take your freedom away and guillotine your kids, you deserve to be alone. <laughs> it's literally better for you and everybody else if you have no community, okay? If we take your microphone away from you, it's not always a good thing to empower these folks. Double-edged sword, swings in every direction. Oops. So we're at this point. Major, major tech leaders you know, help build this universe, bending reality, accelerating all these connections. We're not sure what's even real. And these dudes are trying to leave us behind. And I don't mean like metaphorically, financially, <laughs> culturally. I mean physically. They're going to Mars. Like they are literally trying to leave us behind. I watched Elon Musk's like one hour product video for like getting out of Dodge. He didn't call it that. He called it like exploring the Martian landscape. He was like otherwise, otherwise known as I'm getting up out of here. And I was like, what do you know, Elon? Like just tell us, tell us everything. Because they're funding this thing. And, and what makes me nervous, and I'm not anti-science, I believe in gravity and all the other essential rules of the game. Like I opened with an Isaac Newton joke, like I love science, but I have also seen what happens in the world where white people with resources abandon the populated areas, right? Like this Martian thing is extreme white flight. It's not gonna end well. It's not gonna end well. The last time this happened, we got Long Island. That's bad for everybody. You been to Long Island? It's the worst, literally the worst place on earth. Just lonely people taking out their aggression by fucking up the planet. So, yeah, uh, we'll go to Mars. It'll be weird up there, though, because the kids, you know, the kids always want the cool stuff, so they're going to be dressed in Earth clothes, listening to Earth music. It's going to be weird. <laughs> I'm really committing to this. <laughs> and then we're going we're gonna to get to this point where they realize how bad it is up there, right? but they've like mined all the resources of Mars so they can come back and just gentrify the whole planet, right? Just all of Earth just has like five Latinos and two black people left. It's just not gonna be the most amazing thing. Uh, that ends phase one of our time together tonight. I'm gonna go sit in this chair and blank, bring out Rotimi. Thank you for coming, I'm Baratunde Thurston. Let's get to part two of our conversation with comedy and politics and technology. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Rotimi. We got Rotimi Tunde uh, up here. Tunde, yes, 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 yes. The new hashtag. <laughs> um, First of all, can we have a round of applause for this brother's sweater game? This is amazing, amazing commitment to patterns. You. This evening, um, we're going to talk about all sorts of things. Comedy. Good. Tech. Yeah. But most importantly, blackness, Ooh. of which you uh, <laughs> are a bit of an expert. You wrote the book. I did write, I did write the book, the only yeah. one. The only one. Can't believe um, you let me do that. Great. But I'm going to start off with a, with a question that you, you've probably been asked a, a million times, and I apologize. Okay. Um, but as somebody with a name that's even blacker than yours, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I can feel the pain I'm about to inflict on you. Okay. Um, and I'm, you know, from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And so when I first heard your name, I was like, oh my God, this man, Baratunde. <laughs> 
That sounds like a Nigerian. <laughs> so I was so thrilled to read your book and to read that in, in Bertone's book, How to Be Black. You have an entire chapter devoted to your name yes. and to the many, many responses <laughs> that it gets. So I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about what your name means to you and how it's, you know. Yeah, no, my name means upsets Nigerians. Uh, <laughs> and, and you, thank you, because you didn't come at me on Twitter, right? You were kind and gentle with the whole thing. Um, so yeah, my name has, has layers of meaning, like many names do, and the deepest one is not anything literal, it's just the attempt of a black American family to reconnect with a stolen part of its history. And so my mother led that charge in the relationship with my father, and she found these books, and you know, because they let us read in like 1960, and so she was uh, really excited to find this lost history. And, and so the book had a list of African names, and it was like kind of the chic thing to do, this rebel chic thing, this radical chic thing. And so you have a lot of us running around here, sort of untethered African-Americans, re-tethered by African names, a lot of Kwamis out there with no Ghanaian connections whatsoever. Um, and so, so Baratunde um, is based on the name Babatunde, which you know, and I appreciate you giving me a chance to come clean. Um, and so this is always great. I feel like I'm like, Afro-splaining Africa, <laughs> like, I'm like black-splaining blackness to a man blacker than me, so let me tell you about Nigeria. Okay, so the name Baba, Baba is like father, it's Papa, Baba, okay. uh -huh. and then Tunde yeah. is like returns, like father oh, returns, yes. so, uh, so my... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, so, so Baba Tunde, as you know, is the, the legit name, if you will, the official name, and... Uh, but this book, this book said that you could also use Baratunde. And they apparently didn't talk to a single Nigerian before they published this book. Because I've not met one who was like, oh yeah, that's totally acceptable. <laughs> Literally zero Nigerian has said that to me. Uh, but the meaning my mom was going for was to honor her grandfather. And she really wanted to evoke his spirit. She was a big fan of his. Not of her own father. She wanted to skip that generation. That was a, that was a bad, it was, it was a really bad time. But, but her grandfather, she honored. And, uh, and I, was the, I was a late arrival. I was on like super CP time in terms of my birth because uh, my mom had had a series of miscarriages, I think nine, before I finally showed up. So I took my sweet time getting here. And so the other meaning that the book uh, implied was there is one who was chosen. And so she was like, this dude finally here, yay. And we're done, right? <laughs> the chosen one, I love, yeah. but that's beautiful. And, and, no, no. Oh, I, there's I, more. Oh, no. no, this is just, a, now my turn to correct you. Yes. Um, not the chosen one. One who is chosen. chosen yeah. And I insist yep. on the clarification yeah. because the chosen one yeah. is usually a martyr of some kind. Oh. Right? <laughs> well. <laughs> like they die young, right? That's like a lot of pressure. Yeah. Whereas one who is chosen, like how many are chosen? I don't know. This is just one of them. Like this is... <laughs> It relieves the stress. That's, I like that. You know? That's <laughs> I'm happy to be one among X. Yeah, yeah beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you for thank that. Thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm so, I feel so enlightened now. We're in it now. <laughs> Baratunde, beautiful. Uh, what, is, well, what does Rotimi mean? Oh, well, uh, it means, it's actually interesting. Well, it means stay with me. Um, but it's a similar kind of, it's a similar thing to your mother's story, although my, so I, my, um, my parents are both Nigerian, but they're very um, westernized. 
Nigerians. And so um, there's a, a, a phenomenon in Nigeria, um, a kind of child called an abiku, okay. um, in, in Yoruba culture specifically. And the abiku is a child who comes after many miscarriages. What? Yeah. Um, I'm an abiku? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Congratulations. It's a very special, very special thing to be. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, the, um, so, yeah, so if, a, if a woman has, you know, a series of miscarriages and a child comes, that child is considered to be an abiku, which is, you know, all children come from the spirit world. And so an abiku is a child, a spirit who, for some reason, does not want to be on earth, like wants to go back to the spirit world, has this real strong connection to the spirit world. And so, um, so the child, this spirit comes many, many times and keeps going back. And so um, parents give the child a name um, to encourage the child to stay. And there are a bunch of different names that are um, uh, abiku names and rotimi, the full, full what is durotimi is the full version of it is one of those names. Um, now, my, my parents did not have the story. <laughs> and I actually didn't find out about this until I was like in, in Yoruba class in Nigeria, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is something you do, or oh, some people do. And I learned this in class, and yeah. I go, what happened? And I go home, and I'm asking my mom about you know, all the you know, miscarriages. So she, they never told you. You had to find out well, at they, school. Well, I, yeah, they never told me what it meant, because I don't think they even knew either. Mm. <laughs> That's how in Nigeria my parents are. Um, yeah. So, but they love the name. They love the sound of the name. Yeah. They love what it meant. And so they gave me that name, even though that was not. To like tie no, you here. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so that's, yeah, that's what we're I feel like all black people means. need that kind of security. Just like stay here. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, they tried. <laughs> but I'm in San Francisco, which is not where they are. So uh, <laughs> it only worked so, you know, so-so. Right. Um, but yeah, but speaking of parents and families, I know, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about your mother specifically and how um, you know so much of your philosophy your politics your you know were influenced by her and the way she raised you um, and I'd love to just hear a bit more about you know how you know I feel like you know your comedy or your politics seems to stem from her and yeah yeah she was the influence my father was killed when I was seven or eight years old and he didn't live with us before then so my mom was both parents and you you okay, bro? Like, just ignore me. <laughs> just talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> you got to rotate me that microphone, man. Like, just trying to get away. I know, that was ridiculous. Uh, but I'm proud of myself. I'm feeling it. So, that was for me. That was, for yeah, that me. was good. That was really good. I am laughing. Uh, yeah, so mom uh, influenced everything. And I have an older sister. Her name is Belinda. She's nine years older. And I have to give her a lot of credit because she took the brunt of life in my mother's house because she was first. She was like the beta test, right, for a child. And my mom ran all the different scenarios on her and was, you know, much more physically, like, disciplinary with her. They, had, they came to a lot more uh, bouts of, of conflict. And I came along, and I'm the baby, so obviously it's easier. And it was a mother-son dynamic, which is a little easier in this, in this case, as in many others. Uh, my mother's politics, she was down with a lot of stuff. Um, that was super vague and not revealing at all. You know, you know stuff. She was down with it. Yeah, what, what, kind, yeah, what, great. what kind of stuff? Stuff was big in the 70s. Yeah. So. Stuff and books, right? Stuff and books, <laughs> words and things. My mother, you know, is, she represented in a, in a single life the denial and the reclamation of black pride and identity. And she was born in 1940. She was born in Washington, D.C. She was born the darker-skinned daughter to a lighter-skinned mother 
who made her feel bad about the darkness of her skin and judged her intelligence and told her she'd never be anything and that she wasn't smart, even though she was really good at math, right? Which a lot of young women and girls go through, uh, even from, and especially sometimes other women, even their own mothers. So my mom came out of that, came out of black being this thing to be ashamed of. Like it was more of an occupational hazard to be black back then. Like black people didn't want to be it. White people weren't into it yet. That would come later with like Elvis and stuff. Um, <laughs> And they monetize super effectively, right? Uh, a little less soulful versions. But so, so she went through this arc of discovery that I don't have to be ashamed of all this. And partly it was the Times, DC. Lots of uh, the diaspora was present. She lived in this apartment complex with Ethiopians and Nigerians and Cameroonians and Jamaicans. And so all kinds of Afro-Caribbean, Latin-Caribbean, um, Afro-Latin blacks. And that opened her up a little bit to be less self-hating, which is a radical act in this society. Like if you're black and you don't hate yourself, you're a revolutionary because everything around is programming you to think less, to feel threatened by yourself and to feel less than. So her politics were very personal and her coming out of that brainwashing. And then she inflicted that on me with his name, right? Carry this for the rest of your life. I've made choices, now you live with them. Uh, <laughs> But she, you know, so what it meant is that she took me to a lot of cultural events. You know, we would go to all the MLK Day festivities at MLK Library, like DC, uh, super black at the time, a little more caramel now, but it's, you know, it still <laughs> survives more than some other cities. And we would go on marches, and she was always out in the street. And I found a bunch of letters and correspondence and documents of hers, records in a, in a literal sense, like LPs correspondence in terms of letters she was writing to people in prison, activists. I have letters from my mother to black people in Moscow in like the late 60s. Like what were black people doing in Moscow? Were they Nigerian? In They're the late 60s. They were opening up Paul Manafort's office early, I guess. But she was, uh, she was in this like revolutionary correspondence. And so she was really into it. She took notes for like, you know, the various Pan-Africanist movements, Stokely Carmichael, she had meetings, meeting notes from being in the room. And so all that showed up in my childhood where I got drilled on like the nations of Africa. Uh, she's like, Africa's not a country, it's a continent. Thank you, mom. Right? <laughs> now prove it. I, right? I thank your mother. <laughs> and so I have to go. So like other kids are learning like the capitals of the United States and I'm learning like the nations of Africa and the capitals of the United States. Yeah, as you should, that's all yeah. you should. And then she, <laughs> the, the, she signed me up for um, a rites of passage program. And this is like an even more formal version of black people reclaiming what's been stolen and lost. And so you had a bunch of radical black folk, which is to say sane black people in some ways, who um, you know, had adapted traditions from the Akan in West Africa and Ghana, and uh, it's a society called Ankobia. And they ran a school that was like the super Afrocentric school. I didn't go to the school. She's like, let's slow down. But every Saturday, I went to the program. <laughs> so she was, she was really messing with me because I went to, starting in seventh grade, a private school uh, surrounded by white people. Uh, I don't know why people was so hard to say, but <laughs> by white people, you know, the people of the whiteness. Uh, can I, can I share? Some of my best girlfriend are white. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, but she sent me to that school, Sidwell Friends, and the great educational opportunities, different cultural experience. And then on Saturdays, I went to Uncle Bia. And that's like a real interesting 
uh, game to run inside a child's head. <laughs> I mean, how did that play out? I mean, the, you know, it's like two different worlds. You know, you're you know, straddling. With surprisingly few fights, uh, I think you're setting up a conflict, and she was either reckless or faithful, and maybe a bit of both. And I think she, my mom was a bit of an immigrant mom in that she had a real high standard in a way that you hear stereotypically, and if you have friends who are immigrants or you are yourself, you kind of know what I mean by that. But she was born here, and her folks were born here too, uh, so she would never really suffer excuses for behavior. She'd be, I'm like, she's like, why didn't you not take the trash out? I'm like, I forgot. Why did you forget? I'm nine, right? Like, and that, <laughs> but she would not accept I'm nine, right? She'd be like, no, you're disrespecting me, yeah. right? There's something else going on here. I'm like, I'm tired? <laughs> like, no. Like, and, and so I think what she came to was not trying to force me to live the life that she would want, but forcing me to be exposed to a, a range of life so that I could make an informed choice. And so that set up the whole tenor of my childhood from camping to computers to blackness school to like whiteness school and, uh, and everything in between. She was mostly committed to giving me options and then trusting that I would eventually make a sound choice. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I think, um, you know. Yeah, yeah clap for my mom. Yeah, 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 please. She was a good person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, reading your book and seeing your work and hearing what you talk about, I think, you know, one of the things that you talk about wanting to do with how to be black is to reconfigure right. blackness. Um, and you talk about how, you know, the, the representations of black people in the media and our society and the mainstream depictions limit, um, you know, have a very limited view of the possibility of the full range of black people. And, and you know, just listening to you talk about your mother and how she gave you options or yeah. exposed you to options yeah. that, you know, some people, some depictions, some ideas of blackness exclude as even a possibility for you or for a black you know, person, a black child. Um, and so I, I, I thank her for that, and I uh, want to um, um, segue on to talking about the book specifically, okay. how, how to be black, you know, what, what precipitated it? How did it come to be? It was, uh, why, why did it, how did that book happen? So there's a publishing industry, and <laughs> they have created like a whole mechanism and economy for like creating words and packaging them in a certain way. <laughs> and then you bind them, but there's a distribution network, so it actually gets them into storefronts and internet distribution nodes, uh, and people buy them. Mostly they don't read them, mostly they don't buy them either, but they feel good talking about them, and I want it to be talked about, uh, so I wrote a book <laughs> that was... <laughs> the, um, Smart move. I've, I've enjoyed writing since high school, since I joined my high school newspaper, which showed me that I actually liked writing, whereas high school English class I thought I hated writing. And so it was how you approach a craft, it can determine your attitude toward it. You may not hate math, you may hate the way you've been introduced to math. And so the way I was introduced to words and writing them, I did not appreciate until the newspapers part. So I've been writing for a long time. I've been blogging starting in 2000 on my own in 2006 with this black political blog called Jack and Jill Politics. And I did that with a woman named Cheryl Conti who lives in the Bay Area. And, uh, and so we were operating under pseudonyms when we started this. We're not affiliated, for those who understand, the Jack and Jill Society, which is a, a way to preserve um, and defend and, and sort of like articulate 
uh, a black community in a, in a wider space, especially like Long Island and suburbs and Sidwell and things like that. So we were playing off of that idea of what, could we plant a flag around a black political conversation in US politics that uh, was a bit playful without being necessarily comedic all the time that had some analysis and just like our own version of BS punditry, like why not get in on that? So we had a fun time doing it and we rose with Obama. And so we were writing about him before most others were. We were defending him while a lot, while part of the black community of the establishment was attacking. We've never seen a black man from Hawaii. What's that all about? Shut up, Andrew Young. Like, that's, there was some real shameful behavior from people who have been assigned the label of hero. And you know, Andrew Young, he said uh, Bill Clinton was blacker than Obama because he'd been with more black women. Like, dumb shit. Just why are you being stupid? You're undermining your legacy. Shut up, you know? Uh, just let, let your legacy ride itself out if that's how you're gonna behave. So we would call out things like that. And we had been working on a book project that didn't end up going anywhere. Um, but one of the chapters I had written as a sample for that was how to speak for all black people. And it's something that if you have been the rare version of whatever you are in a room of not you, you've gotten that look, right? As, as a woman, how does that feel? Oh, you're from China? Do you know Jen? Like, so this was my version of channeling that and offering a level of like really dry satirical guidance for how to own that spokesperson thing. And uh, an opportunity presented itself a few years later after a talk about social media, and a book editor from Harper was in the audience, and she sought me out, and we had a meeting, and they said, look, you have a really strong voice, you clearly know how to write, you've been blogging, you wanna do a book? And I was like, I'm good, like, <laughs> not, not necessarily, because I'm like, I like the blogging. But we kept talking, and I realized I, I had more to say. And they had proposed uh, the title, actually. I didn't have, I had the concept loosely in mind, but it was actually an older white dude who was like, what about how to be black? He <laughs> <laughs> was like, I want to read that. And I was like, that's just that crazy enough, it might work. <laughs> like, and so you run with it, and you know it's like ridiculous. And, and being using the comedy, I could get away with that. I'm obviously not offering a prescriptive single solution. Uh, which most people got, yeah. <laughs> well, it's very instructional. I mean, I learned yeah. a lot. But it, it, but it <laughs> Finally was a, figured out. It was a meandering path, you know, the way this book emerged. It was other people seeing something in me. It was me reflecting on what I already knew. And then the book that ended up being written was very different, uh, was more expansive than the book that got sold. Yeah. And what, it was just supposed to be the satire of like how to be the black friend, how to speak for all black people, how to be the next black president, which I was like, well, maybe that'll happen, probably not, like, depending on what happens in this country. And, but it became much more of a memoir in the process of writing it. And that was not the plan. Yeah. That, that happened. Yeah. Um, Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need anything? <laughs> okay. I'm like, people. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's your, of course, yes, yeah. please. That's, yeah. I'm, just, I'm shocked <laughs> I'm the only one who said, Bless you. That's what troubles I'm, me, San Francisco. <laughs> Where, yeah, it's very uh, <laughs> home of the non-conventional place. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can't even offer blessings to a sneezing victim. Come on now, how are we going to defend the undocumented? Come on now, got to start local. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, so um, <laughs> I just said sneezing victim. I just heard myself. <laughs> just like that. So I'll take a moment to think about think uh, about what we just did. San Francisco. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah. So um, so yeah. So the book you you say became more than than what you you envisioned. And yeah. I know in in writing it, you also had a sort of panel of yeah. um, experts. Experts. <laughs> yep. Experts. Yes. It was. I called them the black panel because I'm simple. Yes. And uh, and I split it. I wanted a range. So I had three black women, three black men, one white Canadian man as a control group uh, to validate. You want to validate your responses. Like I said, I believe in science. I p think I established that earlier. Um, and so the point of the panel was really, I just knew dope people who I, whose voices I thought I could help elevate. And me alone caring how to be black is ridiculous. Uh, me with seven other people though, that's perfect. That's just the right amount. <laughs> and, and, and I wanted to explore collectively and try to model how others could explore what does it mean? So we asked a set of questions to all of them. When did you first realize you were black? And like this moment of, of coming of blackness, right, if you will. And did you ever wish you weren't black? And how black are you? And can you swim? And what do you think of post-racial America? And so, yeah, I intentionally threw in, you know, some ridiculousness. But even in answering the ridiculousness, people got real because there's like these painful memories of being ridiculed at the neighborhood pool by the white kids or, or being told that you're going to contaminate and you're like, you wonder why black kids don't swim. And there are multiple, multiple reasons, but one of them is restrictive access to pools. Uh, that's not just an attitude, like it's a consequence of policy. And so that emerged from conversation and it was fun to talk to. I mean, W. Kamau Bell was on my panel. He's obviously the president of uh, the Bay Area, and uh, Elon James White, you know, is their co-president of the Bay Area. They've all, and Cheryl Conti, everybody's coalesced around the Bay Area. Uh, a woman named Damali Ayo, Jaquetta Sabmari, and I chose, I tried to, you know, there were some people who grew up rural, some who grew up in the middle of the country on different coasts, and were of slightly different ages. I'd say maybe the widest gap is probably 10 years, so it did represent a generational band. And then the white dude was uh, Christian Lander who did stuff white people like back in the day. But I wanted to make white people talk about race because they make us talk about race and then kind of ride on that sometimes. And so we have this tax where like we show up and we get to teach and explain and answer and resolve and solve and hug and assuage and comfort. And we don't get any extra compensation for that, right? <laughs> like if you're just working at Google, to be, you're supposed to be an engineer at Google, not like a race-conscious, you know, comfort blanket. Um, so there should be like an extra bonus at the end of the year for like, thank you for calming my like white fears, you know? Like, I'm just saying, like a different way of compensating. And that's not just, I mean, it's around blackness, but it could be around so many other things. So I think we could redo compensation in the Bay and, uh, and the new economy. We're looking for like, algorithms can't do that yet. And so I think you could maybe preserve human jobs <laughs> if you just paid people of color more. Uh, <laughs> Decent person. Um, what are some of the, um, you know, what were some of the most surprising things you discovered about yourself or your blackness or blackness in general in writing the book or in interacting with this panel of experts? Um, I mean, it's hard to write a book. I discovered that. I was, I was pretty foolish when I agreed to do this. And the schedule was bad. Like, I think we signed in March 
and I was supposed to deliver the manuscript in September. And they were like, they were dumb too. Everybody was just an idiot. And I feel totally comfortable saying that because it was successful. So, you know, like, but even if it weren't, you know, and, and there was times when it got really hairy in there, but uh, they were just like, you're a blogger. You clearly don't know how to crank out words. So it's probably going to be easy for you, right? It's like, no, that's, it doesn't scale that way. Like I can mouth off on the internet. That's very different from trying to craft a coherent, like multiple tens of thousands of word, you know, cohesive argument. And uh, so I, I struggled to stay focused and disciplined and to find the connection between, okay, I have all these smart people saying things. Great, that's just random words, right? That's just Trump tweets at that point, but it's not a coherent message. And so it took some time for me to sit with it and I ended up delaying the date by over a year in part because I was creatively uh, unprepared for what it meant to actually like write a book. And then I think I was, it was just, it's always a humbling and a reminder that like your experience isn't everybody's. At the same time as it's really satisfying to find commonality in the experience of someone who seems so different from you. And so there's this balance of feeling connected and mirroring, but also feeling apart and, and distinctive. And that's probably just human, uh, but it came across through, through the race element here, where it's like, oh, I had that same experience. I have no idea what you're talking about right now. And that's kind of the beauty and the challenge of maybe just living. Yeah, um, yeah uh, it reminds me of this line from a play called Booty Candy. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, did you say Booty Candy? I sure did, yeah, it went on this stage. <laughs> Pray tell more. Pray tell more about this booty candy. Oh, well, I, well it would take a long time to tell okay. you. Okay. But I was surprised to say there's a lot of booty and a lot of candy. <laughs> All Sometimes right. Sometimes they're one and the same. So it's honest. But, uh, but, but the line says, you know, all chocolate cake ain't the same. <laughs> yeah. I like and, that. Uh, I, just, I, don't know, just I don't even know what we're talking about anymore, but I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> It'll come to you at two in the morning. <laughs> You're like, oh, that's what it was. Um, but anyway. Yeah, and I think I think that's what's exciting about what was really exciting about reading your book from your one of the many things yeah. that was exciting was just yeah this diversity of experiences of yeah. what it is to be black you know and 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 seeing yourself in that but also seeing how blackness can exist in so many different ways and and I think it's really important and exciting to be reminded of that yeah reminded of the full potential or you know even potential unimagined that we possess as a people. Um, uh, yeah, as individuals as well. <laughs> yeah, because well, we, don't, we don't get, it's sad to call it a luxury, but I think for many people it feels luxurious to be an individual because you're so prejudged by the group you're assumed to be a part of who has already been misjudged by another group that came before. And so to be an individual, to actually exist, to, to, to take pleasure in something just because you want to, to eat when you want to do it, like that is luxurious, sadly. And so to, to have an experience in the room, and I, I went to everyone's home and conducted these interviews, and so you see how people are living, and it's just, a, I had an ultimate respect for how people have chosen to live and, and how different that could be sometimes, yeah. Um, now in the book and in, you know, as we just saw, you did so wonderfully earlier, you use comedy um, to do so many things. Um, and um, I'm curious to just hear about how you came, how you discovered comedy as a tool for exploring these difficult topics, exploring questions of identity, political discussions that might be difficult to have. Um, how, how did you find comedy and how have you developed it? It was later in my life. I was a super, super serious kid. 
I was not funny. I really wasn't. My friends would not have described me as funny. If, if you meet someone who knew me in middle school and they say, I knew Baratunde would always be a comedian, he was always funny, they are lying, yeah. right? Like, I just think, you know, we might remember things differently. And now that I've had official comedy jobs, it's sort of, you, you want to believe that. But if I'm honest, like, I was, I was self-righteous, partly because I was right. <laughs> like, it helps when you're right about shit. But, um, but I, no, I was deeply moved. Like, I would just, as a, I remember going to bed and, like, between, somewhere between, like, six and nine years old and just crying about the fact that homelessness was a thing. And like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I see empty houses, see people without houses, supply and demand, right? Like, I was no Adam Smith, but it didn't seem to make sense. You could like match that up. Why don't we disrupt homelessness, you know? And like, right? pair Travis, those together Travis do that. instead of just like luxury rides for drunk people. Um, which is an important market yeah. <laughs> that I am sometimes a part of. So I'm not, I don't wanna, <laughs> I gotta implicate myself in this too. Like, I love uh, the disruption. But, so, so comedy came out of anger and information overload. I was a, a big news consumer. I always read the newspaper as a kid. I read a magazine every week. My mother was a computer programmer for the federal government. And she had a subscription to this magazine called Information Week. And uh, for those in the know, uh, Information Week is the magazine of choice for chief information officers. And uh, so obviously I devoured that cover to cover every week. So that was the child I was. Like that was, that was me in high school. I didn't have a girlfriend until like senior year of college. Some of this makes sense. And it's all like correlation, not necessarily causation, but it makes sense. So I was, you know, I'm reading Information Week. I'm reading the Washington Post. I'm listening to NPR. And I'm just absorbing the world. And it's, it's pretty shitty. And then school is... <laughs> That's going to sound so good on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> somebody's going to identify you by that. Like, that was Jeremy. Jeremy was at the Bravo that night. I haven't heard Jeremy's laugh in 13 years. Not since Gladys's wedding. Uh, so <laughs> I, was, uh, I would consume all this news. I was obsessed with information. I was also dealing in high school with a level of, like, political hypocrisy, as I saw it, from a progressive administration. This is like Bill Clinton's daughter, Chelsea, was two years behind me. And you, you know, I don't understand, I don't know if anyone, I, I don't know if anyone in San Francisco could understand the idea of a progressive administration in name that doesn't necessarily act out progressive policies that are good for all the people. I don't know if you could ever understand that I think with we can the level of displacement that might be happening or people in New York City where I live who might not understand a progressive mayor who maintains Rikers Island as an institution of torture. So there are, I had an early training in spotting that hypocrisy in uh, a very liberal, white, like self-congratulatory environment where folks are like, but I voted for Bill Clinton, so we're all good, right? And it's like, no, but you're disciplining black kids differently than white kids. And maybe it's subconscious, but we gotta dig into that. So I was like writing reports on racism in high school and like reading Information Week yes. and uh, hanging out in the computer lab <laughs> and doing a high school newspaper. And there was no jokes in any of that yet. Um, but I, I was a consumer of comedy. My mother and I would take a lot of road trips and camping trips, and we would listen to uh, Whoopi Goldberg cassettes. We would listen to Garrison Keillor, uh, Lake Wobegon cassettes. We would listen to Red Fox records and watch Eddie Murphy delirious VHS tapes. And uh, you've got to cite the medium now. I think it's just important. <laughs> I know, that's 
I am old. Oh, real, yeah. <laughs> I am one of the olds, uh, but I Snapchat, so I'm relevant. <laughs> hey, fellow kids, <laughs> what's snapping? I'm with it. <laughs> yeah. But I, so I think the the anger and the drowning in the in the frustration of the hypocrisy of what it means to be in America coalesced with the the voice I was absorbing through other comedic voices. And I started an email newsletter in high school. Uh, it was 1995. The, the email list was jokers at sidwell.edu. <laughs> and I would disseminate jokes that I found on the early internet. This is an internet without pictures or animated GIFs or ads, thank God. And there were just documents. Yeah. It's words, and I love words. And so I became a DJ of comedy electronically. And that tuned my ear even further. And finally, I started to find my own voice in college. And I started my own satirical email newsletter that was a bit like The Onion before I knew The Onion was a thing. Um, and yeah, the rest, as they say, is a really long story we don't have time for. <laughs> but that's the beginning. Yeah. I think the seeds were in rage and information uh, processing and sort of you know, pseudo-journalistic tendencies. Yeah. What, is, what, is, what, um, what can comedy do? do or how how can comedy address these issues because yeah. you know you talk about how the com the comedy came out of this frustration this rage this um you know seeing this hypocrisy and being you know righteously angry about right. it what is comedy how can comedy um how can you have this conversation with comedy in a way that you can't otherwise yeah the, a lot of ways sometimes it's a great distraction and you don't want to go deeper you don't want to analyze and you just want a break because it's exhausting like life, if you really open your senses to the suffering and the pain and the injustice, it's just exhausting. You're like, you know what? I need a break from all that, a commercial break from the human condition right now. So let me watch these dick jokes, you know? And that's like, that's a functional service that this art form provides. Um, more to your point, I suspect, is that it... <laughs> Like, I know the answer you're going for, but I'm going to tell you just, so the, the, always the, the point. full <laughs> spectrum, as I can recall. Um, you get a different lens. And I think for, for, I'll try not to speak so vaguely. What I found in developing my own comedic voice was I was able to say deeply, um, concentrate, I was able to disseminate information and opinions in a way that didn't feel as, as arrogant, as strident, as preachy, as the earlier version of me did when I would literally lecture my black classmates in DC about why you shouldn't support the Washington Redskins football team because you wouldn't support the Washington niggas football team. And I just thought we should have some solidarity. It was like the super obvious thing, but they just saw their classmate thinking he was better than them, lecturing. And that cannot, as a communications tactic, that's not always the most effective, the preacher model or the proselytizing. And so the comedy was, it's a sideways, way into a discussion. And so you can sometimes trick people into realizing that they're agreeing with you. Like every time somebody laughs, they're basically nodding their heads in agreement because their body has revealed a deeper, maybe even subconscious, you know, skipped some logical part of the brain, or you laugh at something you say offends you, but you laughed. So part of you agrees with it. And you, because you came around to the perspective of the speaker and saw the world for a moment exactly the way they did to the point where you're like, so true. Uh, so, so that's a power in a difficult realm of topics 
you know, all the isms <laughs> and injustice and labor, like the future and robots and Skynet, like some dark shit's coming, man. <laughs> Right? And we don't need Skynet to be racist, too. So, like, you can you find a way to play with it. Right? And so I just said a terrifying thing, but a third of you are laughing. Like, but two-thirds of you are like, wait, did he just say Skynet's going to be racist? Wait. Hold the phone. Hold the phone. And by phone, I mean texting device. So, yeah. Well, speaking of Skynet uh, and the future, uh, uh, one of the things that you have done throughout your, I mean, most of your life, I, I, from what I gather, is really sort of bridge the worlds of comedy and tech and technology. Um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about that, um, sort of about how you discovered tech as another tool, one of your tools, and, and how you began to bridge um, those two things together, how those two serve yeah. each other. It's, it goes... <sighs> Every answer to your question is my mama, right? It's like in some level. And the tech thing is obviously, the tech thing is obviously an influence of her. She, when you hear these stories of like a Zuckerberg or a Bill Gates or another white dude who dropped out of school but somehow made it, you, part of how that happened, besides like race and gender advantage, is access. And it's, you know, you, in their stories, they had access to a secret library, to a machine, to a tutor, to some repository of information for longer than they should have, for something that was beyond prescription by the powers that be at the time. And I got a piece of that too. I wasn't able to monetize it as effectively as my billionaire colleagues. But, <laughs> but I don't think that's why I'm here, right? I don't think I'm here to like maximize cash flow so much as like help with information flow. And so I feel good about that. And my mother gave me that access. I've had a computer in my home since I was six years old. And I was born in 1977. So that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> because we weren't rich. You know, we've declared bankruptcy. She's a single mother with social security and working all this government job. But she knew the wealth and the creative potential and just the importance. I don't think she could, I'm not gonna give her that much credit to say she could predict all this, but she knew it was important. And it unlocked an economic lever for her, such that she could support me and my sister, and I could go to private school with a lot of loans and whatnot, but still I could go. And that's because she had a computer job. <laughs> and, and so I think I had an implicit understanding early on of the power of this capability. This is a superpower. And then I started to feel it more intrinsically in, in my creative pursuits. When you... Uh, there is a way that technology is like a language. And if you can start to tell jokes in another language, you know it. And if you start to dream in another language, like, you really know it. And I think I have had the benefit of being so connected to tech early on, not as like some senior programmer, but just understanding how it works, literally building and disassembling computers, that I started to joke with them and started to create with them. And so they became a natural extension of the hands in the same way that a pencil was for a writer or a typewriter back in the day or a paintbrush. And so the computer, the network really nowadays, is a creative extension. And that's, I give credit to my mother for introducing it to me. I give credit to a lot of people around who gave me room to play and didn't just say no, why are you wasting your time? And so it comes to a point where, you know, the last time I was on this stage, probably two years ago, almost to the date, to help produce a show called Comedy Hack Day. Yes, person. 
<laughs> and then others guilted into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know that thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, company. But no, I, I co-founded this company, Cultivated Wit. I used to work for The Onion. And, and me and Brian and Craig, we started this thing, which was to merge humor and tech. And like, you take a hackathon, you take a bunch of software developers and comedians and designers and make cool stuff. And, and the, the, one of the seminal principles was that if you put a joke on the internet, that is like stage one of innovation. Oh, I wrote a joke and I pasted it on the internet. I recorded the performance of a joke on a stage and pasted it on a network. Great, but can you build the joke into the network? Is there comedy in the code? Can the interactions themselves deliver part of the satire, part of the humor? And so what got delivered on this stage is a winning app made by a great team uh, called Well Deserved, a marketplace for excess privilege, where you could sell your overage of privilege, right? And it functioned in a way. And there's, we made a product video for the team that built that. There's Equitable, which is a mobile app that lets you split your bill, and it divides the bill at the end of a meal uh, by closing the, the wealth gap, you know, the pay gap. And so it's reparations one meal at a time. A woman named Luna Malbro, you know, led that team. But that's what I mean by extension. Like, I'm, I'm getting physical with it because I feel like, like a painter and a sculptor, really there's a, there's a physicality to it. And if whether that physicality is actually virtual and it's in like the Amazon cloud and a GitHub repository, it doesn't matter. You're manipulating reality differently. And that's what words are too. You're, just, you're manipulating perception and perception is reality. So how do we go farther with that? That's been part of my journey to enjoy that process and to help build a space where other people could play around in that. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, when I think about, like, art or technology, I think about those as ways that we do, that we do create language or we do create meaning or we do create, um, you know, uh, values, shared values. We create the future. We yeah. build the future. Yeah, we do. With these tools, with these uh, mediums. And so... Um, when I think about that, and I, I, I was, you know, watching um, one of the many um, TED talks you've given, and 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 in one of them you talked about how um, we can't leave the future, our what as you describe it, our techno fabulous future. Techno fabulous, <laughs> yes. We can't leave it to today's coders. That we have to. Um, <laughs> Simon of Degrees. It's one yeah. of today's coders. Yeah, He's like, yeah. yeah you shouldn't <laughs> trust like, me. I mean, yeah. like, you literally shouldn't trust me with yeah. the future. I will break it. I will break yeah. the future. That this is, you know, I mean, this is the future, yeah. um, or, the, or the way the future is being shaped, at least. And so um, I'm curious, you know, who's missing from that or who, do, who needs to be a part of that conversation, that creation of the future? Everybody. Um, yeah. Everybody. Um, just because you're a good software engineer doesn't make you a good social engineer. And we have, we've, we've, we've assumed a transfer there. And just because you make a great app doesn't mean you can make a great society. And what happens is there's this marriage in tech. And it's so seductive, man, because there's so much money and it feels like magic and things move so fast. And we are all capable as people of telling ourselves a very convincing story that, prime, that puts our ego first. And, and ignores any non-confirming information that would challenge our ego. And that's what the tech industry has done. There's like a, a big ego there 
which is arrogance. And there's a lot of blind spots, which is ignorance. And that Venn diagram is deadly because arrogance married with ignorance creates a Google search for beauty that only results in white faces, as an example, right? Or, or a Microsoft product that doesn't recognize a black user because it didn't train on black faces. Or a medical system that until like 30 years ago didn't even acknowledge that you should test on a female body as well. And so the drugs have different reactions. So it's not just tech. This is the latest version of a mistake that we keep making, which is a non-democratic, non-inclusive way of design in the future. And we're building it on a bad past. And so the great flaw of this valley and this peninsula and this region is that the merit alone, the intelligence alone, like somehow we don't need to do that homework. We're just smart. We're just we're like so smart. Like smart people did World War II. Smart people created the slave system. They were super smart. They were brilliant. Their logistics management was on point, right? Like if you want to be real about it, supply chain management, but in the age of no computers, they were brilliant and evil as fuck, right? But implicitly, like none of them thought of themselves as evil. They were just doing their jobs, right? And, and in, the, in the current order. So if you are a part of building this future, but it's resting on a past that you have refused to examine, you're making a mistake. And you probably don't know you're making a mistake because who would point it out to you? So when you start to get into things like algorithmic decision-making and predictive policing, we're going to determine where to deploy armed services who have the power to kill unaccountably on behalf of the state, which is us. But we're going to build it on the history of where crime has happened. Well, where crime has happened? Literally everywhere. Everyone's a criminal. All y'all broke laws today. But who will be policed and arrested and prosecuted and sentenced around violating those laws? Only some people, right? And, and so if you don't recognize that, if you're like, oh, we have this great data, this policing data from the past 50 years, what you have is a great racism database, right? It's not just neutral data. There's no neutral data. It's all just people, man. It's Soylent Green. It's just people. It's all people. And we keep thinking we can somehow like abstract away with enough big data sets and enough you know, uh, machine learning algorithms and AI, but it's just built on people. And we are imperfect. And we, are, we have many blind spots. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to acknowledge that. And people are doing it. I'm not saying people aren't. I will take every opportunity to raise the flag and remind us to keep doing it. Because what will happen is we will think we're in this dope future and it'll be the fucked future and we won't even know it because my future will be different from your future, will be different from hers and hers and his because we'll all have these customized, highly attuned, they'll call it personalization and it'll just be discrimination by another name. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> New slaves. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's definitely an issue that I think hits very close to home here. I mean, yeah. we see well, this is, you know, where I buy Silicon Valley, the epicenter of a lot of these changes. And in this city, I mean, we, we see, you know, you talked about Travis's company and, and what it's doing to labor and to, you know, all I I the inequality <laughs> yeah. that is exacerbated. So I, I thank you for saying that because I think it is so vital um, that we uh, include everyone. Yeah. in the progress, in the future um, that is being created. I, I know that in, um, in watching you and researching you, you're sort of a, you're a bit of a hashtag 
master. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This is true. Uh, this is true. So, um, I, and, and the, the, you know, I've, I've stumbled upon a few of you. So I, I just wonder if there, and, and also, I mean, you talked about cultivated wit and, and, and some of the stuff you created. So I just wondered if there's some, you know, if you can share some of your favorite hashtags that you've created and, and, and elaborate on what they mean or what they meant to oh, you. Oh, this, this is terrible. Um, well, because I just, I just hashtag myself. It's just everything a tune day. My name is very adaptable. It's like a, my name is basically an API. It's like this open framework you can build on. Uh, and so, you know, when I was traveling a lot, I was like, I was travel tune day. When I was campaigning for Obama, it was like Obama tune day. And I, this is Brava tune day night, sure. Like, why not? Because it just, it flows. If it doesn't, and it's actually how I test people. Like, if, if my name works well with your name, like, we could be cool. Like, Rotimi Tunde, that works. That's beautiful, yeah. Right? But some other names don't work, and so we can't be friends. Um, and that's unfortunate. That's, I mean, I'll try, but ultimately, I know deep down, like, we're probably destined to hate each other. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so one, one final, final uh, question or, or discussion topic. Um, you know, I, um, I think, you know, we've, you know, there's been so much humor and and um and i and i think one of the things that i found really moving about um how to be black was actually um you know you talk about the future of blackness what that means to you and what that means to all the members of your panel um and and so just in closing today i would like to ask you um, you know, for those of us out there who are considering our blackness or, <laughs> or how to be black, um, you know, what does the future of blackness look like for you? What do you envision that future being? I, I hope it's self-determination. Um, and that, I wish that for everybody, not just black people. That would be racist. Uh, I'm like, everybody else, I wish slavery and dependency. But for black people, freedom. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Asians. Like, that's just not cool. So, for everybody. Like, it's open source. You know, you should, like, adopt it, customize it, fork it. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I, like, hear myself. I'm like, did you just say that? Yeah. So what happens when you don't think before you open your mouth. It's sometimes inspired, sometimes stupid. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean that. And I, I think, like, I wish for a lot of things, man. I, I, I wish for a healing I wish for a reconciliation with our history. One of the most beautiful things my mother ever did, and she did a lot of beautiful things. Obviously, I admire her still. But we, there was a, in middle school, there was an organization, the Parents of Black Students. It was like the adult black student union. And it was like the funders of the black student union, essentially. Like the underwriters would meet as well. And uh, <laughs> there's some in the room, I think. So, so my mother brought something to one of the meetings because they, you're talking about controversy, you're talking about the bake sale, the fundraiser, like whatever parents groups do, black groups of parents, like we're just people, so it's just what people do, um, just a little black or whatever that means. But what she brought to it, uh, she, she made everybody stand in a circle. She made us all hold hands and she made us close our eyes. And then she said, I want you to imagine that you're in the bowels of a ship, that you're in the Atlantic, and you can feel the waves and the sea tossing, you can hear moaning, and you feel the slickness of human fluids, and the sound of chains, and the wind whipping against the sails. You are being taken somewhere that is not of your choosing. I want you to remember 
<coughs> that and feel that and hear that and smell that and taste that and know that we still have that in us, that we still have this trauma in us. And I want you to let some of that go and forgive yourself and hug yourself and love yourself. And there were tears, man, because you, we know what it is in an individual life for one person to experience one significant moment of trauma and have that go unaddressed. And this town talks about scaling, scalability. We've scaled some heinous and horrible things in the history of our species. And we have not looked back out of shame, most likely, out of fear, almost certainly. And so I wish for black people and all hues of people and the hueless people as well. <laughs> not a lot of people talk about the hueless people. <laughs> like, it's like what happened to them in Sweden was horrible. You know? Like I think about it every day. The hueless people of Sweden. But I do sincerely wish that we would contend with, accept, grow through our history. Otherwise, that is the prison. Like we're all incarcerated by our past and we refuse to address and acknowledge it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yo, give it up for Rotini. Thank you. Very, very effective moderator, interlocutor, partner in word speaking. Thank you all. There's so many of you I haven't seen in a while and some I've never seen before in my life. Uh, it's a real honor. Yay area. All right. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs> <laughs>